0: Support for WPR comes from Lake Superior, Big Top Chautauqua. Presenting concerts, shows, and events under a big canvas tent in Bayfield, Wisconsin, all summer long. Full schedule tickets and info at BigTop.org.
1: Support for WPR comes from The Alliance, a not-for-profit cooperative that contracts with over 39,000 health care providers on its employer's behalf to help them access health care. The-Alliance.org. It's Central Time.
2: I'm Lee Rayburn in for Rob Ferret today, and you're with us on the Ideas Network. Coming up, it's this week's edition of Food Friday, and it's all about prep ahead meals to take camping or anywhere in the great outdoors. We'll learn some helpful tips and delicious recipes for dining away from the comforts of home. First, we take a look at a nationwide supply shortage of chemotherapy drugs. Doctors in 40 states now say that at least one chemo drug is in short supply. That, according to a survey last month by the Society of Gynecologic Oncology, doctors are rationing drugs reportedly, switching drugs when they have to, and it could be causing patients quality of life and chances of recovery as a result. So we're talking about the national shortage of chemotherapy drugs this afternoon. And if you or a loved one are currently undergoing cancer treatment, if your cancer regimen's been affected by some of these shortages, we'd love to hear from you at 1-800-642-1234. If you are, work in the field of oncology, let us know what you're seeing today at 1-800-642-1234 or email ideas at wpr.org. Dr. Carrie Wasinski is the professor in chief of hematology, medical oncology, and palliative care at the UW-Madison Department of Medicine. She is also associate director of clinical research and co-lead of the breast cancer disease-oriented team at the UW-Carbone Cancer Center. Dr. Wasinski, welcome to Central Time.
0: Thank you for having me here today uh, to discuss this really important topic.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I'm very curious what you are seeing. We've seen the numbers and the stats, but what are you experiencing in terms of shortages? What uh, in your practice?
0: Yeah, so like what's going on nationally, we here at UW Health and the UW Carbone Cancer Center have also experienced a shortage of uh, one particular chemotherapy called carboplatin, um, and a little bit of a watch. What I call on another drug called uh, cisplatin. Um, These are both shortage uh, of drugs that are known to be in shortage nationally. Um, We have been doing well with some of the other uh, chemotherapies that are on national shortage, Um, but we have had both carboplatin and cisplatin that have been keeping an eye on.
2: And what do carboplatin and cisplatin do, Dr. Wasinski?
0: Yeah, great question. So both of these are within the platinum class of chemotherapy, which really... um, Uh, attacks how DNA is replicated in cancer cells and uh, therefore has anti-cancer effects used for many different types of cancer. So everything from lung cancer to breast cancer to ovarian cancer, uh, bladder cancers, and some pediatric cancers.
2: Um, Dr. Wasinski, are there viable alternatives to these drugs if uh, if they're in short supply or they uh, are without entirely?
0: Uh, So sometimes you can switch from one chemotherapy to another chemotherapy. So like I said before, uh, here at the University of Wisconsin, we've been more uh, experienced a shortage with carboplatin and cisplatin we're in better supply of. And so we know that those two can sometimes be interchangeably used, not always, but sometimes. And so that exchange can be made. And then sometimes for cancers, there are equivalent other uh, chemotherapy options. And so we have been looking to identify when there is an equivalent option, uh, whether we should use that instead for that individual patient.
2: So have we seen doctors reducing dosages of drugs or switching to others at this point already? And is this something that we expect to continue?
0: It's a good question. Uh, we have definitely been taking the approach of switching to equivalent alternative medications more than uh, reducing the dose intentionally upfront. And um, we've done other actions to also conserve drug, um, conserve the chemotherapy. So for example, sometimes we would release a chemotherapy uh, before a patient would arrive here to be able to make their process in the day here more quick. Um, but if we aren't sure that they'll absolutely meet the treatment parameters that day, you know we're we're holding and not releasing that uh that chemotherapy until we know that they're definitely getting it that day so that we don't end up wasting any additional medication
2: dr Car um, uh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna reintroduce you quick, but if you had more to add to that i'd I'd be interested in hearing it,
0: yeah, so you know I think the hardest thing that we've had to make decisions about is that sometimes we don't have an alternative that is as good. And, you know, often when we're thinking about chemotherapy, it's a course of chemotherapy. So not just what I'm giving to that patient today, but what I'm going to be planning to give over a course of several months. And I think one of the most difficult uh, decisions we've had to make, uh, me working with my patients as an individual physician, is, you know, do we start on a treatment course knowing that it's possible that in the next few weeks we wouldn't have that medication versus do we uh, Go with a different approach that maybe isn't uh, quite an equivalent alternative, but at least I know we'll have the full course.
2: So if you change course uh, in uh, throughout the chemotherapy treatment, does that change the efficacy of that treatment, Dr.
0: Wasinski? It depends, I guess would be my answer to that. So sometimes, mm-hmm. no. Sometimes if you switch to an equivalent similar agent and it's in the same ca- class like cisplatin and carboblatin. Um, sometimes no but sometimes it can. And so I think it's a very much a decision that each physician needs to make with their, uh, the patients and their families um, in the situation that they're facing.
2: Dr. Kerry Wasinski, our guest, Professor-in-Chief of Hematology, Medical Oncology, and Palliative Care at the UW-Madison Department of Medicine, also Associate Director of Clinical Research and Co-Lead of the Breast Cancer Disease-Oriented Team at the UW-Carbone Cancer Center. And we invite your experiences and stories. If you are in the oncology field, if you are a can- uh, patient with cancer and, and have seen some of the effects of these shortages... We welcome you to join us at 1-800-642-1234. Is this something you've seen in your practice before, Dr. Wasinski?
0: That's a really good question. Yeah, this is actually something that we've been experiencing uh, over the last several to many years in oncology. Wow. Um, it's also being experienced in you know some of our, our related fields outside of oncology. So these are generic chemotherapies. And in the U.S., in the United States, the production of these generic chemotherapies occurs really at a few facilities. Um, what led to this uh, issue was that inspection at one of, one of these facilities uh, led to a safety or quality issue and that shut down that production line. And because it's only produced at a few places, there wasn't the ability to ramp up that supply in a quick way. Um, and so we have, we've seen this with other chemotherapy uh, drugs. There are others that were concerned uh, that might continue to be affected in the next few months. So really what our national organizations, our national oncology organizations, our national pharmacy organizations have been doing is working with our policymakers in uh, our national government to really increase the awareness on the, of the importance of having consistent production of these generic chemotherapy agents so that we don't run into these types of issues again in the future.
2: Why aren't we seeing more places produce these generic drugs, Dr. Wasinski?
0: You know, I don't know if I have a complete answer to that. You know, what has occurred is that the number of companies that produce generic medications in general, but generic chemotherapy specifically, has decreased over the years. And so when one production line or one facility is not able to make it, there isn't the ability to ask another company uh, to step in and increase their production.
2: So uh, with the, uh, the shortages, do you expect them to continue? And are you operating under the assumption that they will continue and get worse?
0: So the good news for us here at UW Health and the UW-Carbone Cancer Center is that we have now secured some additional carboplatin. And uh, like I indicated before, we've been always uh, in a good supply of cisplatin. So I think we're in the position right now that we're cautiously optimistic that you know, everybody who is being treated with these uh, chemotherapy agents or that needs to come in and start treatment with these chemotherapy agents that will be able to do it. Um, We do worry, though, that we don't have a a definitive supply chain. We don't know for sure that our order in a week or two or three weeks is definitely going to come in. So we're still being, I think, cautious in ensuring that we limit waste and that we use alternative regimens when possible.
2: Dr. Kerry Wasinski is joining us, Professor-in-Chief of Hematology, Medical Oncology, and Palliative Care at the UW-Madison Department of Medicine. We're talking about uh, the current shortage we're seeing in chemotherapy drugs, and we are seeing a few here in Wisconsin. And if it's something that you've experienced, if you're undergoing cancer treatment, if you have questions, if you are a cancer survivor, survivor what would you like to see change here to prevent more chemotherapy drug shortages in the future? What are your questions about cancer and cancer treatments for our our? Our guest, 1-800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us, ideas at wpr.org. Our conversation with Dr. Wasinski continues coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Lee Rayburn, and we're picking up our conversation about chemotherapy drug shortages and how they're affecting cancer patients. Our guest is Dr. Carrie Wasinski, Professor-in-Chief of Hematology, Medical Oncology, and Palliative Care at the UW-Madison Department of Medicine, and we invite you to join our conversation at 1-800-642-1234. What do you want to know about cancer treatment and recovery from our guest oncologist today? 800 642 1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. And and Dr. Wasinski, you mentioned, alluded to the fact that these shortages in part are because drug production was paused following an inspection that raised some concerns about uh, the production of these drugs. How do you interpret that as an oncologist? What does that mean to you? Well, I
0: think every medication that we prescribe, we want to make sure that is manufactured in a safe way so that we know when we're prescribing and delivering that agent that it is you know past its quality inspection so the fda's clearance of these this type of production is incredibly important Um, and one of the limitations that we know we face with many of these medications is that that also impacts the ability to import from other countries so you know recently just this week the fda did announce that they are going to allow temporary importation of some of these chemotherapy drugs, the cisplatin, carboplatin, from uh from other countries. Um, but this is really important to ensure that we have safe high-quality medications that we are giving. And on any- the other hand, when you know this leads to a shortage because we can't increase production of a, a high quality product, that is really you know, disappointing. And United States, where we should have really high quality access for all of our patients.
2: And are you confident about the quality of the imported carboplatin and cisplatin uh, that'll come to the United States?
0: I am. I think the FDA is a reliable organization that will only allow importation of, of high quality products. Let's go
2: to your questions now for our guest, Dr. Kerry Wisinski at 1-800-642-1234, where Allie in La Crosse is standing by. Allie, good afternoon. Hi there. Hi. What do you have?
0: Um, well, I, so I'm an infusion pharmacy technician, um, and so I actually, I make all of the chemotherapy drugs that the patients receive, like I physically put the drugs into the bag and stuff. And I just wanted to bring up the point that I, I don't think a lot of people realize that um, a lot of times we're throwing away vials of medication because we can't vial share between patients due to how it has to be billed through insurance. So I, it's just, you know, as a tech, you know, you see the, the shortages of medication and it like breaks you a little bit having to throw away essentially a full vial of medication because it's, you know, we only needed five milligrams out of a 200 milligram bottle and we have to throw the entire thing away because of how it has to be built through insurance. So I just, I don't know what the answer obviously is, but I definitely think it's a point that, like, should be brought up.
2: Allie, thank you for bringing up this point. And Dr. Wasinski, what about the waste involved in, in the uh, supplying of chemotherapy drugs and, and the inability to vial share?
0: Yeah, um, thanks to Allie for bringing that up and um, thanks also for what she does because I know that that's an important part of our uh, care delivery for uh, patients as well. So, you know, there are some ways to adjust to that. You know, we have, uh, we try to minimize waste. And so, you know, I think that if there is a very small amount that is gonna come out of a vial and we don't think that that small amount, is uh, enough to have an impact on a patient's uh, care. So, you know, if it's a less than a certain percentage, that we know that that is never going to be an impact on how well the chemotherapy works for that individual's cancer, then we try to conserve that vial. So, there are some system approaches that can be done to limit that waste. But I think Allie brings up really good points that there are opportunities for us to think about um, ensuring that we give chemotherapy safely, because ultimately that is a high priority but also limit waste.
2: Dr. Carrie Wasinski, Professor and Chief of Hematology, Medical Oncology, and Palliative Care at the UW-Madison Department of Medicine, our guest. Your calls continue at 1-800-642-1234. Karen in Madison joins us next. Good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon, and thank you for having this educational program. Um, I'm wondering, uh, what is the cost difference between when... uh, Pharmaceuticals got full price for their full, their drugs and the generic drugs. What's the difference in in the price that the pharmaceutical companies get for these things? Wondering if that's causing them to no longer make the drug and. Um, there was one other question only I have having trouble with my memory. So,
2: <laughs> well, let's uh, let's ask that question of our guest, Doctor Wasinski, and how much of this has to do with the business of pharmaceuticals and and the uh, money uh, that is made uh, or the differential with generics, Doctor Wasinski.
0: Yeah, I do think it's a lot of what is occurring right now. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about the production of generic medications, generic chemotherapy in this setting, the the margin, how much a pharmaceutical company makes from the production of that drug and this ultimate sale and delivery is less. And so the incentivization of those companies to make uh, make these types of agents is lower. So that's really where we have to think about our national policies and how we might, as an, uh, a nationwide effort, incentivize the production of generic chemotherapies and other generic medications uh, because they're important for our patient care.
2: Thank you. And uh, Karen, thank you for the call. We continue with your questions next with Kim and Madison joining us. Uh, Kim, you're on the air with Dr. Carrie Wasinski.
1: Hi. My question is, uh, my husband has bladder cancer and he's been treated with BCG coming up on two years. And I know, not in the Madison area, but uh, nationwide, there had been a shortage of BCG. And so they were cutting the dose or using other medications. And his uh, urologist had said that they've used gemcitabine and doxytaxel and are having very good results with that. And I'm just wondering whether the UW is using gemcitabine and doxytaxel
0: instead of BCG or is an alternate to BCG and uh, what your thoughts are on that.
2: Dr. Wasinski, do you are, are you familiar with that?
0: Um, so that is not my area of expertise, so I am not uh, familiar with what we are using in a replacement there. You know, I can talk a little bit to how we in general approach these drug shortages. Um, so if there is a shortage predicted or a potential shortage occurring. You now, first of all, we try to identify potential shortages early and you know pre-purchase as much as we can um, to have access for our patients um, that's always our priority and then like i was mentioning before if there isn't sufficient supply if we don't have enough of the drug then we really try to identify alternatives so as the caller was alluding to you know things like um, other chemotherapy agents or other treatments that might be a reasonable alternative hopefully as good at uh, at treatment, um, but sometimes not as good. And we have to figure out what is the best plan with the resources we have.
2: Dr. Wasinski, June is Cancer Survivors Month, and one of the, the uh, it, although we've been talking about these drug shortages, it should not go without mentioning that our cancer survivor rate has increased dramatically. The more we know, the more we screen, and the more we treat, the more access to health care we have. And so, what, what has that been like from your standpoint as an oncologist to see more and more people being able to survive with a cancer diagnosis?
0: Uh, so, yeah, it's been a really exciting uh, part of my career, I guess is what I'll say. I've been doing this for almost uh, 15 years now, and to be able to see continual advances in how do we make early cancer diagnoses, screening, how do we treat cancers uh, better, how do we help those people who are impacted by those cancers you know, be more likely to survive their cancer diagnosis, have a better quality of life after their cancer diagnosis. Um, those aspects have been really, really rewarding to see.
2: And what are some of the new therapies on the horizon of cancer treatment? And, and what are you looking for into the future of your practice?
0: Hmm, great question. So I think there's a few really exciting uh, 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 recent developments in cancer treatment and things that are coming. So first, I think you know we've really seen immunotherapy Uh, have a huge impact on how uh, people are doing who are living with cancer at this point in time. we already have seen this for multiple different types of cancer. And I think we are continuing to learn how to leverage the immunotherapies for additional patients uh, impacted by cancer. So how do we do that even better? Second, I think that there's some really interesting and exciting uh, research and newer treatment, or newer testing platforms coming out where we're looking at blood uh, based DNA, but looking for tumor DNA in the blood. And so this is now being looked at for early cancer diagnosis, almost like a screening test. This is now being looked at for monitoring how well people are doing on active cancer treatment and in the survivorship realm, looking to see if we can identify earlier if the cancer is recurring or not. And then can we do alternative treatments to not have that cancer recur? So I think these uh, circulating tumor DNA blood tests are really uh, exciting. I think they're very early, but they are an exciting future direction.
2: Hey, Dr. Wasinski, thank you so much for joining us today. And I very much look forward to having you back again.
0: Well, thank you for having me. And I do think this is an incredibly important issue. So um, I hope that all of us uh, continue to advocate for uh, national improvements.
2: Dr. Kerry Wasinski, Professor-in-Chief of Hematology, Medical Oncology, and Palliative Care at the UW-Madison Department of Medicine. Also Associate Director of Clinical Research and co-lead of the Breast Cancer Disease-Oriented Team at the UW-Carbone Cancer Center. She joined us today to take a look at the ongoing chemotherapy drug shortages we're seeing across the country and right here in Wisconsin. Coming up after the news, we're taking Food Friday into the great outdoors as we learn better methods and new recipes for cooking at the campsite. You got a campfire, and we got the recipes for you. I'm Lee Rayburn, and for Rob Ferret today, and you're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Lee Rayburn in for Rob Ferret and coming up federal prosecutors indict former President Donald Trump and the Republican primary field grows to a dozen candidates. We have a Marquette University political science professor joining us to discuss the latest in 2024 presidential politics. But first, if you're heading into the great outdoors this summer, what are you bringing for food? My last camping trip was to the Black Hills of South Dakota. We brought a bunch of pre-processed bags of dehydrated food. We just had to add the boiling water. And we got bored of those bags after our first day in the forest. Well, it's Food Friday here on Central Time, and today we're taking our outdoor meals to the next level. Whether you're backpacking through the North Woods or pitching a tent in your own backyard... Our next guest is here to show us how to make gourmet food from the kitchen to the campsite or the cabin. Wherever you're going this summer, you can join us at 1-800-642-1234. Your favorite meals to make outside. How do you approach your camping meal plans? And do you prep your dishes ahead of time or make everything right over the fire? A little bit of both, perhaps one 800 or you can post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Our guest is Chris Nuttall-Smith. He is a food writer, a critic, and a judge on the cooking show Top Chef Canada. His new cookbook is called Cook It Wild, Sensational Prep Ahead Meals for Camping, Cabins, and the Great Outdoors. Chris, welcome to Central Time.
1: Hey, it's so nice to be here with you, Lee. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, and I understand you just got back yourself from camping this week. How was it? Where'd you go?
1: Well, I got two hours eastward on the highway before I turned around. I was stopped by smoke, uh, believe it or not. So I'm, I'm a little disappointed, but my wife and I, we're going we're gonna to give it another go next week.
2: Oh, yeah, I did not think of that. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear <laughs> Neither that. Neither
1: did I. I. I felt pretty dumb after driving two hours, but it, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't great.
2: I, I understand when you get that itch and you just want to go. So, and, and I also understand from Cook It Wild that you probably had prepped some meals to take with you. What did you have planned to eat on your trip, Chris?
1: I had some good food in my cooler. <laughs> so I was meeting a friend for a fishing trip. Um, I had a mix of really good lunches. There's a there's a grilled ham and cheese sandwich that you prep ahead. And you just put it in a pan or on a grill, whatever you want. It's called bikini sandwiches. They're mm-hmm. from Spain. I had some really really good buttermilk and corn flapjacks, which I love. And you put scallions in them. There's a bit of you just add a bit of frozen corn if you have it, and they're just sweet and savory and crunchy. I had a bunch of good stuff. Anyway, it went back into the fridge, into the freezer. It's going to hold. It's going to be just fine. So I'm disappointed. More than anything, I'm just jonesing to get outside. It's that time of year. <laughs> well,
2: uh, I, as I was coming to work today, my neighbor was leaving for the she- uh, Chequamegon-Nicolet National Forest. And I was like, boy, if I got the book for you. if he, Oh, man. If he had planned ahead. And by the way, the flapjacks I had on my list were the uh, chickpea fla- flapjacks from your book, Cook It Wild. So oh, yeah. there's a couple of variations there. But a lot of this has to do with the planning that you go ahead and do well before the camping. And that's perfect for me because when I've got like a vacation or camping on my schedule, weeks before that happens, I begin plotting and scheming and planning just as a mental Ah. escape uh, from, you know, vacation before the vacation. And you've got in your book five keys to to these camping, this camping fair. Uh, Take us through them, Chris. That all has to do with being ahead.
1: It's all about getting ahead. So this is a prep ahead, make ahead book. Um, Almost all the recipes you do ahead of time. And that doesn't mean you need to spend hours and hours or days prepping them. A lot of the recipes take 10 minutes at your kitchen counter. Some of them are more involved. But, you know, you really pick. But those five keys to prepping at home, chop ahead. Anything you can cut up, whether it's vegetables, whether that means taking the bones out of meat, whatever, do it at home. Um, And it saves you time. You're not... Balancing a cutting board on your lap as you're sitting around a fire trying to relax, it works. Mix ahead, um, whether that's spice blends for grilling, whether you're making, you know, dry mixes for these flapjacks I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got a great cheese, grate it at home. You don't need to bring a grater <laughs> and a whole block of cheese. It also lets you measure things in advance. Cook ahead, if there's anything that you can cook down. So I have... A paella recipe. It's kind of one of the showstoppiest oh, yeah. recipes recipes in the book. And you know, when you make paella you cut up onions and all sorts of stuff. Well, I put those in my food processor. It takes about three minutes to chop them. And then I cook them at home and I put them in a bag and I stick them in the freezer. So when you get to camp, most of your work is already done. Steal ahead. What that means is, you know, if if you want to, you know, something, if you want to bring something that comes in a, you know, a, a big bag from the supermarket, or, you know, transfer it. Measure out how much you need and bring just that. You can put them in little plastic containers and resealable bags. If you have a backpacker, you can backpack whatever you want. And that applies to wine and, and drinks as well. You can't bring glass bottles to a lot of camping areas. And the other thing is if you pour, you know, wine, whatever you want to drink into uh, soda bottles, for instance, um, you can freeze them. And so they help keep your cooler cold and who doesn't like slushy wine? (laughs) Uh, So, you know, there's a bunch of little tips and tricks they apply to all the recipes in in the book and they're things that people can use before they're going camping whether that you know they're cooking straight out of the book or whether they're doing their own recipes
2: sure uh, chris nuttlesmith our guest and his uh book for our food friday is cook it wild and we're taking a look at how you can prep ahead to take gourmet meals with you wherever you're going this season and when it comes to freezing ahead i took a look at what you do with your cooler and it made me think of tetris chris
1: it's not that hard. I promise. (laughs) Uh, It's, it's funny. A a lot of the cooler companies, you know, have, have done a lot of educating people, people, so many people now have these hugely expensive um, coolers. And I spent years on the sidelines thinking, Oh my, are, are they worth it? Are they worth it? Well, if you, if you have the means, you can borrow one from friends. They do work really well. That does not mean you need one, but yeah, I lay out in the book how to pack a cooler, no matter what kind of cooler you have. You should your cooler should start cold. If it's been sitting in a hot garage and you put ice in it, your ice is going to start to melt. And then, yeah, you, you know, you put block ice on the bottom if you can. Any of your food that you can freeze ahead, freeze it. It acts like ice. And then, you know, there's some basic things like anything you're going to need on day one, you know, your lunch on the first day, that should go right at the top of the cooler so you don't have to dig around for it. If you have a bottle of something, stand it up. They're easier to find that way. So Mm. there's a bunch of tricks like that. And then, you know, one of the simplest ones is if you have a beach towel and you have a little extra space at the top of your cooler, put that beach towel at the top of your cooler under the lid. It fills the space. It keeps hot air from getting in. It keeps your food colder longer.
2: It's, it sounds like Tetris, Chris.
1: Um, <laughs> okay, fine, it's Tetris. Well, that's a fun game. Well,
2: here, here, and the other thing, okay, this is something I probably, I, I, I did not think of when it comes to camping, but dairy and eggs. And you have a way of keeping dairy and eggs so that you can take it with you and use them for your meals from dinner to breakfast and snacks in between.
1: Yeah. I mean, depending on what kind of dairy, I, I run through the options, you know, to, mm-hmm. if it's if it's kind of a long haul backpacking trip. And Cook It Wild, by the way, is not just for car campers. A lot of the better kind of camp cookbooks are for car campers. But if you're backpacking or you're paddling, you're out of luck. Cook It Wild is for every kind of camper. So if you're going on a long backpacking trip, maybe you're bringing dehydrated milk. Uh, but I bring people through the different options. You can freeze milk and cream if you've got Room, just give them a shake when they thaw. I also, you know, in the way of dairy uh, cheeses, I tell people what cheeses are great to bring that you don't need to refrigerate. I think maybe in Wisconsin, I think it's probably people have a a better understanding of cheese. But in much of Canada where I live, and I know in much of the U.S., people think if you leave a piece of cheese out on the counter for five minutes, and you even look at it, you're gonna die. (laughs) Uh, And you know, I mean, it's just reminding people a lot of cheeses che- cheese making is a food storage technique. So telling people these are the great cheeses you can bring, you know, including some cheddars, including, you know, parmesan and manchego and a lot of soft cheeses as well. And, you know, they'll keep in your pack for 5-7 days plus. So, yeah, dairy and eggs, you know, one of the tricks to eggs, there's a there's just a decadent I I think it's the best french toast anybody will ever eat. Uh, in the book, and you think, well, how do you make French toast camping? I don't want to bring cream and eggs and all that. You don't. You make it at your counter. It takes six minutes at home. You whisk cream, eggs, maybe some orange zest, a little sugar, a little salt. You put them in a little plastic bottle, like an Nalgene, and you freeze it. So you get to camp. You thaw out your, your, your batter. It usually just thaws out naturally in a day, but you can thaw it out if you want. You put it on your bread, and you have this decadent French toast that you didn't have to do almost anything for, can't.
2: I got when we when we were getting ready for this interview, Chris, I thought that French toast recipe looks really good. We'd love to share it with our audience. But then I thought <laughs> it is so simple that it's not worth actually posting, because once you once you put it together, you spend a few minutes of prep at home and then a few minutes on the grill or, or at the uh, campfire. Uh, yeah. you've, you've got French toast. And I was like, it and can't... this is
1: the trick of the book. I mean, <laughs> so much of what's in the book um... Once you understand, you know, just that little trick, just make your batter at home and freeze it. It's intuitive. It makes, <laughs> it makes so much sense. Why now, didn't I the, think of but, this? You know, and as I was researching, you know, little things like, you want to bring feta, feta cheese, A great cheese, whether you're making chilaquiles or whatever. The feta cheese, you know, you got to pack it in brine. No, you don't. Freeze it. <laughs> Take it out of the brine and freeze it. You want to bring some black beans or any kind of beans out of a can. Empty them into a zip-top bag. Reason They store beautifully. They're so much easier to break. So there's little tricks like that all through the book that you realize, oh, yeah, this is really going to change what I'm able to eat, what I'm able to serve my friends and family, and, you know, how delicious a trip is going to be. And it's not dehydrated, you know, survivalist food.
2: Yeah, the book is Cook It Wild, Sensational Prep Ahead Meals for Camping Cabins and the Great Outdoors. Our guest, Chris Nuttall-Smith, joining us. He is a uh, judge on Top Chef Canada. And we're also looking for your suggestions, your go-tos at the campsite. What do you enjoy cooking? And do you do some prep before you leave? 1-800-642-1234 to join our Food Friday conversation today. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can also post on our Ideas Network Facebook page. Now, it's not like we didn't have recipes to put on the website today, and you can find those from Chris's book at WPR.org slash Food Friday. He mentioned the Campfire Paella, and we'll go over that next, as well as his go-to granola. uh, And it's something, you know, you can buy and pay too much for, or You can make it home and enjoy uh, while you're outdoors this summer. Also, again, you can join us at 1-800-642-1234. We'll continue our Food Friday conversation with Chris Nuttall-Smith and maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Lee Rayburn, and we're picking up our talk with Chris Nuttall-Smith, a judge on the cooking show Top Chef Canada, food writer, and his new cookbook is Cook It Wild, Sensational Prep Ahead Meals for Camping, Cabins, and the Great Outdoors. I invite you to join us uh, on our Facebook page, Ideas Network Facebook page, uh, or call 1-800-642-1234. And let's get to this campfire paella that you mentioned earlier, Chris. Our, uh, the recipe can be found online at WPR.org slash food Friday. This really elevates our campsite cooking, but you got to do some work ahead of time in order to take it there.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a bit of prep. That's what makes it doable. I mean, the fascinating thing, two really interesting things about this recipe to me. First of all, this is the recipe that turned me on to make ahead prep ahead cooking. Huh. I've been a food writer forever but like a lot of people, I always thought you know, good eating and being outdoors don't really go together. <laughs> I had a friend who I went camping with. She's an accomplished indoors person. She is not a camper. But she brought this. She had prepped it ahead. She made it over the fire. It took about 25 minutes, and it was one of the best meals I've ever had in the outdoors. But the other thing to know about paella is it started off as this humble laborer's meal in the rice fields in Spain and People would cook it at lunchtime over a fire, often in the blade of a metal shovel. so I think in a lot of people's imaginations it's this very complicated you know fancified meal. it doesn't have to be that so the recipe I have you know you you chop up your vegetables, you know onions, peppers, you know garlic, just in a food processor, you can do them with a knife if you want at home, and you cook them down in olive oil, you add some Spanish paprika uh you know some. Tomatoes and so on, and you cook that down, and then you pack it up and you freeze it. And when you get to camp, you have a little bag of your rice, which is already measured out. You know, you've got your saffron and your salt measured out in there. And um, there's uh, three variations. The one I make, and this is to me, so this friend of mine brought what I call a block of frozen squid, which to me <laughs> is especially the time was one of the all time <laughs> dumbest things I'd ever seen someone bring camping. <laughs> I, my eyes just bugged out when she told me she had that. But what she had was a zip-top bag with, you know, squid that had been chopped up. And she threw it in the pan over the fire with some olive oil. No fuss, no muss. And, uh, you know, she added a few shrimp. Same thing. They'd been frozen. They were easy to bring in. You know, added those vegetables and the rice. And we got this smoky, crackly, crusted, just decadent paella and I just remember eating under the stars that evening and looking around. We've all got campfires glowing on our faces and just thinking like, I can't believe this is camping. <laughs> uh,
2: and there are variations in your book as well. So if, if squid froze, a block of frozen squid is not your thing for a camping <laughs> trip, you'll find variations in cooking. There's one
1: with chickpeas. There, you know, There's one with chicken and artichokes too. So <laughs> there's, there's easier, simpler versions. But yeah, I mean, if you got an RV or a car or you're an ambitious paddler, I highly recommend the seafood one, too.
2: All right. It's your turn now to uh, join us for Food Friday at 1-800-642-1234, where Mike and Wauwatosa standing by. Mike, good afternoon. Hi. How are you? Good. good. What do you have for us today? Um,
0: seafood. I tried aluminum foil on fish, whatever type of fish you want, and it doesn't seem to work. And when you put shrimp on it, or shish kebabs, they just fall in the grill and it's a mess.
2: You sound defeated, Mike. Let's see if we
1: can that, yeah, that's hard.
2: <laughs> Let's see if we can't get Chris to help here with some seafood and some shrimp uh at the campsite on the fire Chris, what do you do
1: sure well, I guess the question is uh, um was the issue that it fell out of the foil it just the foil wasn't holding, or was it something about the taste of the seafood it didn't, that
0: didn't, work? It didn't cook correctly.
1: Okay. Well, what I recommend, so I break down in the book how to make foil packets so they work. Often it comes down to the the, the foil you're using really and sure. the heavy duty stuff, which is thicker, that's wider. I use a double layer of that. You always need to have, you know, uh, your vegetable or protein, that's your seafood. You need to have some kind of fat in there, whether it's butter or olive oil um, and, you know, some seasonings like salt and so on. If you get those three elements in there and you pack them up right, it, it usually works. But I'm sorry it, it didn't work out for you. Um, it, it it's That's one of the great standby camping meals. So I'm frustrated on your behalf. Heavy-duty foil, though, bit of fat in there to, you know, give the seafood some more. Moisture and something to cook in, and don't forget the salt and seasonings, and, and you're off to the races.
2: Let's go next to Megan in Green Bay. Megan, good afternoon. You're on the air with Chris Nuttall-Smith.
0: Hi. Um, I have a very simple recipe to share. Um, I'm enjoying listening to the program and learning about all these fancy things. <laughs> but I love <laughs> ramen noodles, peanut butter, and soy sauce.
2: Oh, I love it. Well, I love it. Yeah, because there is a whole ramen section in in your book, Mike. So, uh, but I do not recall the peanut butter soy sauce combo.
1: I'm just imagining it. So you've almost got like a Southeast Asian, like peanut element there. And the soy sauce is adding the salt. To be honest, that sounds pretty delicious. Mm -hmm. Ramen is such a great versatile, (laughs) excuse me, camping meal. And, you know, not every meal you have to have, you know, in the outdoors has to be fancy. I love that you mix it up. That's something I put in the book as well. Just different things you can do with ramen to gussy it up a little bit. I love that you've gone there. It sounds delicious.
2: And Megan, I would also, if you could, bring a lime with you and add a little lime to that as well for a little citrus in in the ramen. You're Uh,
1: talking my language, (laughs) (laughs) Lee. I love
2: it. For our Food Friday, his book, Cook It Wild, How You Can Prep Ahead Your Meals for Camping Cabins and the Great Outdoors. Let's talk about the other recipe that we've got available for uh, uh, online at WPR.org slash Food Friday, and that's your go-to granola recipe. Now, usually... I'll spend a lot of money on the expensive, store-bought, easy, ready-to-go granola, but might be a little stale, and it's certainly not my own. You make it your own, Chris.
1: I make my own granola. And listen, granola, as you have noted, the good stuff is so pricey. (laughs) The thing about granola, when you make it yourself, It's less expensive, and you can also put such good food in there. Great seeds, nuts, tons of flavor. What I do with my granola is I just break it down into a ratio that makes sense that you're not going to screw up. So three parts rolled oats, one part seeds, one part uh, half and half fat and some kind of sweetener, whether that's olive oil and maple syrup or whatever you want to use. Uh, and then some some nuts and some fruit or whatever. Anyway, I break down the ratio. I tell people how to do it so it's foolproof. And it's just such a great way to start your day when you're out there. There's lots of energy and protein. And I eat it as a trail snack too. One of my secret ingredients that I love is dried sour cherries.
2: Mm. The um, Well, we've got those in Wisconsin. We can do that here. Uh, Mark, oh,
1: sour cherries are one of, the, one of the most underrated fruits there is.
2: Perfect. Uh, we've got a Facebook comment from Mark who says he's fond of taking a bake, uh, baking chicken in a Dutch oven loaded with carrots, leeks, onions, and more, taking it, baking it for about two and a half hours on low heat, and he uses it as a soup base. And you use your Dutch oven in any number of ways from, I, I think it is, uh, you've got uh, sticky rolls in there, you've got Dutch babies in there, uh that Dutch oven seems to go a long way out in the great outdoors, Chris.
1: They're fantastic. I I really love mine. So some people have the heavier cast iron ones. I have a cast aluminum one. So I bring it on canoe trips where there's a lot of portaging even. Um they are versatile. They're great pots. They're a little heavier, but if you're camping in a group, you can, you know, break up, you know, who's carrying what. And, you know, I even have, I make a dry, uh, just a chocolate cake mix. You make it at home. All you have to add is melted butter. Well, butter lasts forever if it's salted. And water. And you can make the most spectacular chocolate cake out in the wild. It's one of my favorite party tricks. People's eyes just always kind of jump out of their head when they see it. Is
2: that and, uh, the Backwoods Birthday Cake in your book? That's
1: that's the Backwoods Birthday Cake for an Excitable Child, it's called. So, you know, <laughs> If you're turning it into a birthday, you bring some sparklers, you know, maybe you're bringing some decorations. But, you know, even (laughs) just for grownups, it's just this decadent, moist chocolate cake that you're literally making in the campfire.
2: We don't need kids for that chocolate cake. No, you do do not.
1: (laughs) Send the kids (laughs) off to collect firewood while you eat it. There's not enough for them.
2: Uh, As we wrap up here, Chris, if we're going to be camping for more than just a couple of days, what tips do you have for keeping uh, things uh, crispy, keeping things fresh on a longer camping trip?
1: It really comes down to eating your, you know, your fresh food, the stuff that's perishable at the beginning. There are so many, you know, mixes you can make, things you can make that uh, will last without refrigeration. And listen, vegetables. I have a wife who loves cruciferous vegetables, cabbage in particular. So she will smuggle a quarter head of green cabbage in the bottom of my food bag. I carry it for days. And then you reach, oh, my, what is this thing at the bottom? So, you know, there's just a very simple dressing. It's made with a bit of miso and sesame and and some vinegar. And that will last without refrigeration for a month. So you clean up that cabbage. You add a little bit of this dressing. And you've got such a nice, crunchy, fresh thing to eat. But carrots are great. Granny Smith apples last. Don't ever underestimate how much people want some freshness and some crunch when they're a few days out in the woods.
2: Chris, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lee.
2: Chris Nuttall-Smith for our Food Friday to talk about his new cookbook, Cook It Wild, Sensational Prep Ahead Meals for Camping, Cabins, and the Great Outdoors. Don't forget those recipes that you can find online at WPR.org slash Food Friday. who's looking for a savory side hustle now i'll tell you up front the pay isn't great and you won't be able to work remotely but there'll be plenty of pizza and cheese the center for dairy research at the university of wisconsin madison's looking to hire someone who's passionate about pizza and cheese Don't worry if you don't have a discriminating palate because the Center for Dairy Research will train you to become a connoisseur. Your job will be to describe the taste, texture, aroma, and appearance of pizza and cheese. A lot of pizza and cheese. You'll be partaking in a dozen pizzas a week and up to 24 samples of cheese. Jeez! Other than the lactose intolerant, who among us wouldn't already have all the experience necessary and be abundantly qualified? It's just part-time and 15 bucks an hour, but you'll also be paid in a plethora of pizza and cheese. Job applications are due June 21st, and if you're planning to apply, make sure your cover letter is good and saucy and cheesy. This is Central Time.